river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm a Track Quest Podcast, Carson Brown. What's up, buddy? Hey, what's going on? My phone uh, said scam likely, so I guess we're all, we're scamming. I, I don't know. <laughs> How's it going, James? Pretty good, buddy. Uh, yeah, what's going on at Sherwood Shafts? Fill us in. Um, making lots of shafts. Uh, got a lot of orders here the last few days, and uh, yeah, just staying busy. Got a. Uh, good amount of uh material coming in purchased a couple really nice salvage logs uh some high cascade that uh just beautiful beautiful wood uh tight ring to the core has spine uh ran ran some through pushed some through the process just to double check spine uh, after the initial purchase of a 20 foot section of this log, you know, it's like, Hey, this is beautiful, really high yield, uh, no limbs, super straight, just beautiful wood. Very and, uh, nice. like I, I just, yeah. The, you know, but spine's always a question. So, so push some through process. Uh, it has spine. And so went back and, and purchased another 20 foot section. Uh, the yield just incredible. So really getting a lot out of this uh, 40 foot, uh, section of logs so that's uh the first 20 foot all switched up uh turned and milled up into boards uh and stickered up so so uh, yeah, when you yeah. when you say it has spine you're talking about being able to take care of the 60 65 up to the 80 85 85 90 type stuff yeah yeah i it's always hard to tell when you push things through the process because it's green going through the molder and then shrinks and and so it's it's just a little different i don't want to yeah i i love it if it produces some maybe 590s it, it might i don't know for sure but it's definitely going to have uh, a lot a high quantity of 65 70 60 65s that are really popular right now it seems and then you know some 70 75s for sure 75 80s and there should be some you know uh getting up into that 80 85 so that's that's something i haven't gotten in uh except for one small log that produced some real high spine like starting at 1775 uh other than that haven't seen much uh high spine in any of the recent uh stuff run so so it's good log good log to be working on right now very nice selfishly i'm hoping for some 80 85 so hopefully uh there's a little bit of that in there, and I did see some photos you've been posting on Instagram, and it definitely is some beautiful wood that you've got your hands on. So that's pretty exciting news. Yeah, yeah, and and hey, for the eighty eighty five guys like yourself, James, there there's uh, um, I'm, I'm really fortunate for this resource. It's it's not the cheapest source for uh, Douglas fir, but uh, it's a fellow that deals in export grade logs, and uh, he mills them up for cvg clear vertical grain fur uh for you know high-end uh, doors and, and molding um and he's right around the corner from me it's like a 20 minute drive and he's got stacks of these logs he's in good with a few of the right loggers and so he's he's up there hand picking trees and some of these salvage units um on forest land uh, 
uh, I, I'd like to be doing what he's doing myself, but just not plugged in with the right people at this point to be doing that. So he's, but uh, he's a good middleman for me. Uh, like I said, right around the corner, and I get to go just look through stacks of logs. And and so what what I was going to say is uh, he he's got a few that have uh, a couple slightly smaller diameter, maybe thirty inch diameter logs that have uh, real high spine written all over them. They're they're uh, yeah. They're, they look stout, real heavy, dark, uh, what we call winter growth, uh, rings, heavy resin rings. So those, those will be next. Well, that's super exciting news. And for all of us guys that, uh, love traditional arrows, uh, wood arrows, I mean, uh, we will, we're excited to hear that. And I know that you've been working your tail off because you didn't show up to bear camp you didn't show up to Western States. You were not at the rendezvous at the river. And I know in the future or in the past, you would have been on all those things, but you've been working your tail off to uh, keep Sherwood shafts producing uh, ammo for all of us uh, traditional shooters. So we do appreciate that. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, no, no problem. I've, uh, I've missed, missed the shoots, missed seeing folks. I knew I was biting off, uh, a lot to chew taking on the business myself, but, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, the, this particular log, um, has me feeling really good is exactly what I've been uh, looking for. And I uh, spent some time looking for it up in the woods myself as, a uh, you know, up in driving the foresters roads and just wasn't having any luck. So, but the bullet bought a nice one and, uh, yeah, it, it's turned out to be exactly what I need right now. So, might be able to start attending things again. Uh, hope to attend September. That's the most, yeah, that's the most important part that you uh, can make some time for the Wapiti season uh, just around the corner, September. Um, and I do have a resource that uh, I need to reach out to, uh, some a timber faller, and he runs a, several timber fallers down in the Siskiyous, which is, you know, Northern California, and that could be promising. And so I'm, I'm going to look into that for you and, and um, that's a good, good transition into um, who we have on the show tonight. Speaking of California, uh, we have a yeah. friend of ours, uh, Jack Harrison. Um, so, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty excited to be putting out a two-part series with Jack. Um, you actually introduced me to Jack. Yeah, I, I can't remember how I first uh, uh, came in contact with Jack. Um, I haven't. I haven't met him in person yet, but, uh, I think maybe it was through, uh, some, some staves. Uh, he, he was looking for a uh, juniper stave. He was, he was doing some real, um, replica type bows, uh, like sending you back juniper and contacted me for staves. I think that's how we first started chatting. And, uh, he, he's definitely into the primitive side of things. And, and so we just, uh, ended up, uh, comparing notes and, and, uh, talking quite a bit on the phone. And, and that's how I got to know Jack. Yeah. And, uh, when I heard, you know, Jack was a younger guy, meaning younger than us. Um, yeah. I'm, al I'm always excited to, to hook up with these guys. And, and so I reached out to Jack on the gram and, um, uh, me and Jack have become, I, it's pretty strange. I, I wouldn't, it's pretty strange to call him a really good friend. Cause I've actually, yet to meet him in person. And usually I wouldn't say that about somebody, but I literally talk to Jack every day uh, and have been for some time. And, um, 
he's he's definitely a go getter. Um, he's been stacking up some pretty nice uh, bucks and and uh, hogs down there in California. And we actually uh, didn't get into that in this episode, um, so that's why I said we're going to do a two part series with Jack. Uh, the first part, um, Jack's a, runs a survival school down there in central Northern California, and he's had you know some anything from working with children to uh, adults to uh, law enforcement, military to celebrities, and um, he's a pretty talented young man and is making an impact. Uh, on the survival school side of things. And we really just got into all things survival from a hunter's perspective. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that it's going to be well received. And, um, I know trad quest, you guys are expecting, uh, traditional bow hunting, you know, all the time. And trust me, he's a traditional bow hunter, but we really just dove into, uh, the situation, you know, we got September coming uh, around the corner and uh, with guys that are elk hunting or mule deer hunting or or uh, bear hunting or whatever your adventure is going to be, we really put out some great information. I, I learned a lot talking to Jack, some things that I just overlooked um, about the survival situation. You know, we you think that it's not going to happen to you uh, until it does. And we really covered uh, all bases on uh, that topic. And I hope you guys go ahead and listen to it uh, from the beginning to the end because there's some gold nuggets in there. And uh, I hope you don't need this information, but you should be listening and practicing and making sure that your pack has the right things in it. And as you will hear in this podcast, uh, I, I touch on some uh, to a hunter that never made it home here in Oregon, and uh, meaning he never made it home. He's been missing for five years, and so we, we talk about that. And it's really important that you uh, are prepared in case you get put in this situation. So I think that uh, you guys will enjoy this one, and uh, stay tuned for part two where we dive into. Uh, bow hunting boars and blacktails with uh, Jack Harrison. And yeah, I think uh, it should be well received. He's looking forward to it. I know uh, Jack is, uh, he, he strikes me as someone uh, in terms of a, a bow hunter who, uh, you know, understands what it takes and uh, takes putting in the time. I, I, I see from him that he really puts in the time. So I'm sure he has that same approach to uh, the survival school that, uh, he's a part of and teaches so um yeah i'm sure he's a wealth of knowledge on that subject uh for a young man yeah absolutely so hope you guys enjoy that and if you've been waiting on some high spine arrows from sherwood shafts sounds like carson is getting close to uh producing those and uh yeah we once again we appreciate you supporting the podcast and if you guys are enjoying the show, don't forget to support us on our Patreon. And don't forget to support Carson Brown at Sherwood Shafts and Andy Ponce at Addictive Archery. Uh, Carson's got you covered on the raw shaft material. And Andy uh, has got you covered on uh, custom-built 
awesome, beautiful arrows. So once again, enjoy the show. TradQuest Podcast. I'd like to welcome a uh, buddy of mine on the show today, Jack Harrison. What is going on, Jack? Oh, not much, man. I'm really excited to be here. I feel like I've been listening to this show for a long time, and it's great to finally be on here. Yeah, well, this should be pretty natural for me and you since we talk uh, just pretty much daily. So, yeah, I'm excited to have yeah. you on and share, uh, you know, kind of your life story and and uh, how it relates to traditional bow hunting and woodsmanship skills and that type of thing. So, I don't know, why don't you head and just get us started and tell us a little bit about, you know, you and where you live and what you're up to. Right on. Cool. So my name is Jack Harrison and, uh, I live in central California. Uh, currently most of my life I've lived, you know, around San Francisco Bay area. I currently live in Santa Cruz, California, which is, you know, roughly an hour and a half south of San Francisco. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I've been deeply immersed in nature from, uh, uh, survival perspective, learning about plants, animals, um, tracking and, and hunting, um, since I was very young, hunting didn't come in until a little bit later, but, um, you know, I'm a professional survival instructor, which, uh, for me, what that means is I teach people the skills they would need to stay alive in the woods, um, along with a lot of other skills. And, and I work with a wide variety of different, uh, user types and demographics from, you know, uh, famous tech workers to celebrities, to kids, um, general public adults and, uh, California highway patrol search and rescue, um, all different types of user groups come through and train, um, with me and with the company that I work for. And, yeah, I, I love what I do. I'm, I'm super passionate about it. I, uh, I live and breathe, as you know, everything nature, um, whether it's learning about animals or learning trees or tracks or w- whatever it is. Um, it's always been my obsession, and, and I can't say it's changed at all since I was 10 years old. So how did that, I mean, how did that start? You say 10 years old, so... You know, a lot of 10-year-olds nowadays are hooked on video games. Obviously, you know, my generation, we played outside. Um, right. Like, how did you go from embracing the outdoors as a young kid to gaining the skill set that you have now? So, I think a lot of it came from being in the generation that I am in. And I'm, I'm, I just turned 33 years old. Um, so I was born in 1988 and obviously, obviously there wasn't a whole lot of technology. I mean, we had the internet and some video games, um, when I was a kid, but that wasn't something I ever had available to me, um, to a point where that's how I was using my time. So my family, my grandparents probably, and and my parents were, got me outside when I was really young, went backpacking, fishing, fly fishing, uh, spending all of our time outside. Um, and ultimately we ended up moving around quite a bit. And it, when I reflect back on that question, you just asked me, um, I think moving around a lot and living in, in somewhat rural places, um, was a huge catalyst in me 
learning what I have learned and, and continuing to do that. Because as you know, when you move around a lot, it's hard to make friends. And when you're living in rural areas, nature's always there. Like if you, if you move somewhere in the summertime and, and you can't go to school to, to make friends, then you go into the woods. And so that was just my outlet. And it got to a point where um, I actually started going to this like program through through a kid that I met at school. It was called Birch Heart and it was on the East Coast. And it was a weekend program. And I started going to that and it was all about like different survival skills, primitive skills. Um, it was a bunch of students from a place called the Tracker School in New Jersey, which some folks might be familiar with. And, uh, you know, I'd go there on the weekends and, and we would be sleeping in debris shelters or primitive shelters. We'd be, you know, catching snakes and eating them or gigging frogs or catching fish or making pottery or cordage, flint napping, building bows. We did a, a lot of different um, skills at that camp uh, or weekend. I don't know what you'd call it. We'll just call it camp. Um, we did a lot of different skills. And, and eventually, uh, after I'd been doing that for a couple of years, I eventually kind of moved into a leadership position when I was about 14 years old from the extent of like helping other students learn. And uh, anyways, it just, it just kind of kept, kept rolling from there. Um, I, I was always obsessed with it. In, in when I was a kid, I, I caught a lot of flack for it in school, you know, being called like nature boy and woodsy, but, but being outside, learning about nature, reading books about nature, that was just where my obsession laid. And um, I'd like to credit a bunch of people for teaching me what I know. But to be honest, a lot of that just came from me wanting to know, you know, how to make fire with sticks and reading about it in the book and seeing several people do it and then figuring it out on my own. Um, so there was a lot of that throughout my life and, and as well as bow hunting um, because starting out, I, I never did have a mentor and that's something we could talk about later um, until recently. So I don't know if that answered the question, but, but yeah, I, I just spent a lot of my time outside and like most kids do. And um, it was just, you know, building forts and making traps and, you know, finding old tree stands and, and bottles of like cover scent. I was just, and sometimes an old arrow here and there. And I was just super fascinated with that. And ultimately I think that's what really led me into my curiosity with hunting. Um, so, and for context, a lot of this took place in Connecticut where I lived at the time. Okay. So were there primitive bows being built at that time? Like where, where did archery start to fit in? And then also you'd mentioned books, are there some books that, uh, you know, were influential in your development in some of these skills? Yeah, absolutely. So archery kind of came into the picture when I was really young. Actually, my mom was telling me a story the other night about to potty train me to get me to use the toilet. Her, She told me that she'd get me a, a bow and arrow if I started <laughs> using the toilet when I was a little kid. And I guess I, all of a sudden it was like fixed and I was using the toilet from there on out and I got my bow and arrow. So it started a lot earlier than I actually remember. But from what I remember, um, from a primitive perspective and building bows from nature, um, I built my first bow when I was, I think, 13 years old, maybe 12, 13, 14, somewhere around that time. Um, it was a hickory bow. Um, it was at one of these uh, a camp that I would go to. Um, and 
I remember we uh, cut that hickory tree down with a stone adze, which is a, a napped. Basically, it's a, a primitive version of a hatchet um, would be the best uh, analogy. And so we cut this tree down with a stone adze and roughed it out with that stone adze and, um, and then broke out our pocket knives and got it going. And we made a green hickory bow there. Um, and that was the beginning of my obsession. And, um, I built my first sinew back bow when I was 16 years old. Uh, I built, you know, many different hickory bows as a teenager. My favorite wood was California Bay Laurel. I ended up moving back to California. So our archery started young and, and it started with, you know, a, a bare archery fiberglass, you know, bow, um, a kid's bow. And eventually I broke that and started, started making them from wood. And uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, yeah. And so at, uh, touching back on those books, are, are there a few books that you, you know, like I said, that were uh, inspired you to? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So some of the most inspiring books when I was a little kid, I think include My Side of the Mountain. That was one of the earliest ones that I read that just turned me into, you know, a kid that wanted to live in the woods. Um, and My Side of, Mount, of the Mountain is a story about a kid that runs away and, you know, builds a house inside of like a hollowed out tree and, you know, catches a peregrine falcon and is uh, <laughs> hunting with it. So that book is really inspiring. I did eventually get into some books written by a fellow named Tom Brown Jr., who was the founder, is the founder of the Tracker School, which is that school I referenced um, that I would do kids camps through on the East Coast. And his books were really inspirational for me. Um, there was a lot of incredible stories in his books. He's written a number of different field guides. I think he's got to have written over 20 different books and field guides or right around that. And reading his books was, was a huge inspiration for me. I, I can clearly remember getting home from school and like opening up the, the field guide and, and picking a skill and then just going out there and doing it. Um, and that was kind of like what I did every day instead of homework for <laughs> my entire uh, um, teenage and young adult years. Mm, that's very interesting. Is this uh, where you ran into and became friends with uh, Bill McConnell? who's a guy we've had on the show. So, yeah, Bill, Bill uh, was, when I was really young, he was still sort of a legend because he, at that time he was head instructor of the tracker school and there weren't a lot of kids going through the tracker school. The tracker school um, had uh, the kids program, which was known as uh, coyote tracks and it was a different foundation. And Bill was teaching the adult programs through tracker school Um and I, so I met Bill probably when I was like 17 or 18 years old in Montana, uh, driving out to his house at that time. I remember we drove out there with a bunch of Osage bow, self bows just to get him to look at them. Hmm. I think some stone points too, but we drove all the way out from Washington just to go like show these bows to Bill and see, you know, were they good? Were they bad? Et cetera hung out with him. Um, he had just gotten back from, I think, a caribou hunt. So he had a bunch of caribou quarters just like laying in the garage. Um, and uh, yeah, so he was living in Bozeman at that time. And Bill was a, a big inspiration for me. Um, it still is. And uh, is an incredible primitive hunter and somebody who's truly lived it. And growing up, I would hear a lot of stories about Bill. Um, 
and he's someone who I have a lot of respect for and look up to. And, and I was really uh, stoked that you guys got him on the show because he, he truly is, uh, you know, one of the few people that's really lived it when it comes to primitive skills and specifically primitive archery. Yeah. I, I really, uh, enjoyed having Bill on and definitely, uh, a guy that we need to get back on the show and catch up with. I try to stay in touch with, with him. And like you said, he's just uh, a really inspiring guy and really, uh, you know, embraces the woodsmanship skills that are kind of lost art of today and whatnot. So if you guys uh, want to go back and listen to that, that was episode 80 with Bill McConnell, uh, primitive bow hunting and woodsmanship skills. So that, that's a great episode. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really cool that, uh, he's a friend of yours and, um, you've been able to, uh, obtained a little bit of mentorship from him and whatnot. Uh, so Washington, I'm hearing the East coast, California. It sounds like you've moved, moved around a lot. Um, maybe, yeah. uh, how were you able to continue these, uh, this lifestyle from state to state? Uh, is it hard to find, uh, you know, like you said, the woods are everywhere, but to continue your, uh, your, you know, building of knowledge and, and these skills. Right. So, um, for me, a lot of those moves took place when I was a minor. And so my dad worked for, um, IBM. And so, you know, IBM stands for I've been moved. And so you're, you're going all over the place. Um, and so Washington, so, so basically I was born in California. I lived in California until I was about 10 years old. We moved to Indiana um, lived in Indiana. I spent a short time in, in Mexico and then um, the East Coast, Connecticut for six or seven years. Uh, eventually moving back to California, I graduated high school in California and I actually moved up to Washington where I spent a year studying tracking um, and, you know, a bunch of different, you know, nature related skills and um, studying those up there in Duval, Washington through a school that um, is known as the Wilderness Awareness School. Um, so instead of going to college, I, I chose to go do that. Um, and that was an incredible experience and I met a lot of great people and was introduced to the Pacific Northwest. Um, got to see Roosevelt Elk, got to really just experience hunting on a little bit of a deeper level. When I went up there, you know, in California, there is a, a, a big hunting culture, but it's kind of tucked in. And where I grew up in California, there's not a lot of public land, um, at least for a teenager, right? There's not, you can't drive 30 minutes away and hit public. We're talking like two and a half to four hour drive at least in um, any direction, sometimes yeah. further. California, so, California doesn't so, have a lot of those like broken up small pieces of public, but they do have some giant, huge pieces of public land that a lot of people don't realize California is a big state and there, and, and it's, even though it's, uh, you know, I'm originally from California as well, as you know, and, um, when you drive through that state from top to bottom, it's a long one. And, and people think of just the cities and the concrete and the bridges and the, you know, the big skyscrapers, but, um, California is a large state and it has a lot of wild places in it. Oh yeah. I think, I think it's ranked like number nine as far as most public lands in the United States. Yeah. Um, and just like you said, we have these giant chunks 
but there is kind of this middle part of the state where we don't have these small pieces and, and the pieces that are designated as public have either you can't hunt on or, um, you know, the, the attitude around hunting in California is, isn't necessarily negative, but they're just, there's not the hunting culture that there used to be. And so for my generation, you know, um, there just wasn't as much opportunity to access hunting uh, if you didn't have a vehicle and, and didn't want to drive, you know, several hours or had a mentor to take you out, um, you know, prior to my generation here in, in the San Francisco Bay area, you know, there, there's tons of hunting. And a lot of that hunting is the reason we have Thule elk. Um, it's the reason we had access and fallow deer that were, you know, eradicated, you know, wild boar. There's, there's a lot of animals that were brought here specifically for hunting. And at one point in time, California was, you know, it, all about hunting. Um, well, if you look at the history of the state, there was game refuges everywhere. Um, but that's, and it still is, but you know, it's changed a little bit. No. Yeah. California, uh, is a sportsman's paradise for sure. And, and it'd be really easy for us to dive right into that hole, you know, right at the beginning of this podcast. And I really want to circle back to your journey into bow hunting, but I'd like to touch on some of the stuff that we started in the beginning of this conversation. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about, um, how you took this passion and love for the outdoors and these skills that you learned from these schools and books and, and mentors like Bill and was able to turn that into a career. Like, you know, did you go to college a little bit or do like, where did you, at what point did you decide that uh, this is the path I'm going to use to to pay my bills and um, and and then what does that look like? What are what is what are the teachings and the things you provide or offer to the public? You know, I'd, I'd like to learn more about about that. Yeah, for sure. So I think as far as like how I ended up doing what I do now, I think that's a great question because in my field, a lot of people fall out of it. Um, or they dream to do what I'm doing, uh, but don't necessarily make it. And um, so it, it is very hard to professionally be a survival instructor because there's just, it, it's hard to live off of that. Um, so, so there's a lot of folks that are like accountants, but then teach survival classes on the side. And, and I've never had a different job. Um, I've been a survival instructor and then as an adult, I did some hunting and fishing guiding on the side, which we can talk about later if we decide to, to answer your question, um, from a really young age, I was introduced to these people that were teaching survival, people like Bill, people like, uh, you know, a, a really close mentor of mine, Cliff Hodges, who, who I work with, um, I was introduced to these people that were really inspiring. They were, they were teaching, right. And as a naive teenager, I believed like they were, I thought it was awesome living in your Tacoma, you know, driving around teaching. Um, I thought that that was like the coolest thing in the world. And that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, there was a, there's a funny joke that kind of gets thrown around about like primitive skills and survival instructors. And that's like, what do you call a, uh, I, I might butcher it, but it, it goes, what do you call a survival instructor with, with, uh, Tacoma without a girlfriend and, and the answer is, uh, homeless. 
right? Because they all live in their trucks driving around. And and so anyways, I I just looked at them from when I was young and I just looked to those guys as like the people I wanted to be. People like Bill um, specifically that taught these classes and lived it. Like they didn't do anything else. They went hunting, they went fishing, they taught their classes and they inspired other people to do that. And, and through what they've done, they inspired me. And, you know, I'm a really stubborn person and and really goal oriented. And I've been that way since I was really young. And so I just decided this is what I'm going to do. And I made a lot of sacrifices to do that as far as like living a normal life. Um, And, and, you know, some of that stuff might be stuff that a lot of bow hunters can relate with. Um, I didn't, I did go to college through Prescott college in Arizona and studied experimental archeology. span That came later and that wasn't a part of my career. Um, And that was just an excuse to flint nap more and get a college degree, which is making stone tools, Um, building bows and arrows and flint napping and, and, and finishing the degree. Um, that, that was my goal there. You know, it wasn't like to go take a math class. It was just to do more of this stuff, uh, and be able to continue to do it while my parents were pressuring me to, to get an education. So I just decided from a young age that this is what I wanted to do. And I committed to that. Um, you know, I started, you know, putting myself out there and volunteering as an assistant. Um, I got my first paid job teaching a fire friction making class here in the Bay Area. Um, It was through the Miwok Archaeological Preserve of Marin. And so at 16 years old, I taught my first, you know, hand drill, bow drill class. Um, I assisted with deer processing classes, uh, hide tanning, um, sinew back bow building, flint napping. Um, I was already very, very, very deeply immersed in that from a young age, and I just continued. And fortunately, through the dedication that I had to learning and bettering my own skills, Um, you know, I'm a bit of a competitive person and and although maybe it's not the mindset that everyone would identify with when I was young, my goal was to be the best at this stuff. Um, and, and I can't say that that is my goal anymore, but, but for a long time, I wanted to be known as the person who was the best at this, um, at flint napping at bone making. And it sounds silly to me now. Like I can laugh a little bit about it. Like, Oh, that guy's the best at making arrowheads. Cause there's a lot of people out there who are really dang good at like, making arrowheads or making bows. Like there's not a lot of people that are really good at all of it. Right. So anyways, I put a lot of time and energy into bettering myself and, and, and volunteering, teaching little classes. Um, you know, as soon as I graduated, I got a paid position teaching survival classes and I've been teaching ever since. So I've been teaching professionally since I was 18 years old. Um, and, and just now I'm 33. So walk us through, you know, you said that there's a broad range of people that you're working with, but what does that, what does that look like? And, and what are they, you know, what are they coming for? Yeah. So a big part of what I do are, I teach a wide variety of different classes and I I work with a number of different organizations. Um, And, and so most of what I teach is, uh, is a one day course. Um, it's a one day course. It, it gets tailored a little bit. And, and this is the course that I teach if I'm getting flown to different parts of the country, or if I'm teaching here locally in Santa Cruz, um, it's the same course that highway patrol, uh, air rescue crew contracted us for, uh, and a number of different organizations, you know, a lot of high profile folks. And I don't want to name drop or anything, but 
there, there's a lot of different people teaching survival and, um, and it, it meant a lot to me to get chosen by professionals that are lear- need to learn this stuff to stay alive. Just to give some context there for why I really value some of those um, demographics and user groups being customers and students. Okay. So um, these classes, um, for the most part, are um, one-day classes. And really what, what I focus on, I'd say 90% of my workload, is teaching a one-day class that focuses on teaching people how to procure their basic biological needs um, how to prioritize those needs and then get them in any situation. Um, although wilderness and, and lost person situations is what I specialize in. I, uh, what I, what I teach could be applied to a number of different settings, uh, whether it's a building that collapsed or, um, being stuck on an Island or a plane going down or, or, you know, any, any situation, right? Survival is, is what we're doing right now to stay alive and wilderness survival is just, repeating that in a natural setting, right? In so, a setting. So a lot so, of just like, yeah. you know, getting, getting lost in the woods, let's say, um, these, yeah. you're going to be teaching the basic skills on, on how to, uh, make it through the night. Is that, yeah. is that and correct? So, so, so I'll give you a little background on, on like kind of why I teach what I teach and stop me at any point. But, uh, most survival situations in North America in this field, we say last between 12 to 72 hours, meaning if someone gets lost and they're reported missing, um, typically if search and rescue or doesn't find them within three hours, um, the window of time is that, that people are lost and then eventually rescued averages between 12 to 72 hours. And, you know, that's a big window of time, but it's, it's helpful for context. And the reason I bring that up is, is that allows us to prioritize what we need to do to stay alive in that period of time. Um, when people do get lost, whether it's uh, hunters, hikers, backpackers, um, the number one cause of death is exposure, which is like a blanket term for hypo or hyperthermia, basically overheating or freezing to death. Um, and believe it or not, hunters are, they do make up a, a fairly large percentage of the folks that are getting rescued and recovered out of the backcountry every year. Um, I wasn't aware of that until I, you know, asked search and rescue and the California Highway Patrol helicopter crews who they're rescuing. And, and I was really surprised to hear how many of those people were hunters. And when I asked them why these people are being rescued, the number one reason was uh, heat stroke. Um, it, during our A zone archery season, it gets really hot. And so there are folks hiking in with not enough water and, and getting dehydrated and then needing to get rescued. Anyways, to get back on topic, most survival situations last between 12 to 72 hours. And so that context allows us to kind of prioritize the things that we need to stay alive. And so as human beings, we have really basic biological survival needs. And those needs are air, shelter, water, fire, food and tools as well. And I guess we could add other humans as well. So it would go air, shelter, water, fire, food, other humans and tools. And those are things that we had before we were even a species, right? So we've been making fire, we've been hunting, we've been building tools. Like we've been doing that since before humans existed, like prior to us evolving from the hominids we evolved from. And so these are all really old biological needs that we've had uh, for our entire existence. 
And so the reason I bring those needs up is when people get lost, it, it, it's easy to panic, right? And so creating a simple list, creating kind of like a basic list of what you need to do is a great way to stay calm and kind of create this illusion of control over the situation. And so, for example, if someone were to get lost, you know, it's getting dark, they're turned around, maybe they're out elk hunting and, and their phone died so they don't have a, their maps or whatever system to get back. Um, at that point, rather than just freaking out and continuing to hike through the night, you know, sitting down, taking a deep breath and, and recognizing, hey, I could stay out here tonight and I'm going to be fine. You know, I'll build myself a really simple, quick shelter, which we can get into here at some point, and I'll crawl inside of that and be fine. And then when it gets light out, I can get, make my way out of here. Um, and so the shelter, water, fire, food list is a way of simplifying our biological needs and creating a, a list that we can prioritize. And the reason it goes in that order is because it's something called the rule of threes. And the rule of threes is really widely taught in the survival world. And it goes like this. It goes, on average, human beings can survive three minutes without air, three hours without shelter and inclement conditions, three days without water, three weeks without food, and then three years without human interaction. And so the rule of threes, I think the military came up with that a long time ago when they were developing their SEER program, um, which is their survival program. And it just a, it gives us a reason to focus on those basic priorities. And it gives us a reason to do shelter before fire or, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and, and those are just averages. There's examples of humans surviving, you know, 20 plus days without water. But those averages basically allow us to simplify the situation, create this illusion of control or you know, doesn't, illusion might not be the right word, but kind of get some control over the situation in our own mind and, and not make poor decisions that are going to result in us getting more lost. Okay. Um, when people do get lost, a, a very common, you know, thing that happens is, is you hear these stories of, of hikers, you know, at one point they were on the trail and then somehow they end up in like a deep canyon, right? Like we always hear about this, like, oh, these people finally were found and they were in this deep canyon way off trail. My question is like, dude, how did you go from being on a trail to now being in a deep canyon? Right. And the only answer that I have for that is letting, you know, panic creep in. Um, and, and, and I'm sure like you've experienced that. I know I've experienced that. It's just adrenaline. Yeah. And, and when we let that happen, we're, we're really hamstringing ourselves. And, and I think a great analogy for bow hunters is just like buck fever. Like everybody's experienced buck fever. Like, you know, an animal comes in and you're just shaking like crazy. Yeah. Um, and that experience of lack of control is kind of like a, a, a good way to envision what it would be like if you were to get lost and not be able to stay calm. Um, although instead of making a shot, that lack of control would be around you know, being able to do any fine motor skills and like make a fire or, or make complex decisions. Right. And so what that's called is your sympathetic nervous system response. And, and it's also known as your fight or flight response. And the reason it matters is, is once you let that, you know, kick on, you're limited to what we call gross motor movements and yes or no decisions. And so you're really hamstringing yourself, which brings us back to that shelter, water, fire, food. 
that's the reason I teach that because, you know, it, it helps us stay calm and it keeps the situation really simple when if we let our brains take it over, it might get really complicated and we might continue to make bad decisions that, you know, are going to compound and, and result in us maybe not being rescued. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, and I know fire can be very comforting, especially when if it's cold. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and fire, you know, fire making skills are really valuable. And I have to say, like, overall, the, the, the people that I work with, when I do have hunters show up, I, I do have to give credit because a lot of the hunters that I meet are already pretty experienced when it comes to, like, hiking around in the dark or dealing with, you know, bumping into mountain lions or bears or whatever it is, stuff that basic civilians and, like, the other people I deal with, they might freak out if they bumped into a bear or a mountain lion and do something really dumb. Right. And so as hunters, I think from the time spent outside, we do have a, a, a very good baseline for woodsmanship and, and survival skills. Um, although there, I think there's also a lot that can be built upon that. Well, um, well, so that's really my intention. I don't know about you, but I'm always purposely trying to bump into bears and mountain lions. <laughs> <laughs> that's my intention i know <laughs> yeah well i've been making those mistakes bumping into mountain lions a little bit down here this year as you know and uh we can't hunt them down here so at that point it's just like a cool encounter but yeah the more animal encounters the better yeah for sure i know um you know when you're following herds of elk around or or deer around you know ungulates um the the, the prey, um, you know, the predators are, are just, just behind them or just to the side of them. So it is uh, always cool to yeah. have those experiences for sure, even if they're not on the menu that time of year or, or at all. So uh, that's, that's very cool. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and I could, if you, if you want, I mean, I could elaborate a little bit on, on, you know, shelter. We yes. can talk about it later. Yeah, no, that's that's why we're there. But let's let's get into what your what these one day classes and what, what what folks are coming away with. Right. Yeah. So so I think like if I could give you guys one one thing through this podcast for those people that are listening that that would help them if they ever found themselves lost. Um, you know, there's a lot of information, and and a lot of this information is can be challenging to go really deep into in in just talking about it um, because survival is, is very dynamic and there's an infinite number of variables and no survival situation is ever going to be the same. Um, and so every situation demands a unique uh, type of approach to it. Um, so there isn't any one way to really like address, like this is what you do if you get lost. But that being said, if there was one way to do it um, very generally, I do think that, you know, staying calm and, and maintaining a positive mental attitude would probably be the biggest or most valuable tool in, in anyone's toolkit, because from a psychological perspective, um, there's nothing more valuable than a positive mental attitude and, and staying calm, cool, and collected. If you do let yourself panic and you do let that sympathetic nervous system res response kick on, um, like I said before, you, you're really limiting what you're going to be capable of doing. And, you know, I, I've worked with some, um, some Navy SEALs over the years and, and they, they taught me a saying, um, it was, uh, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back on your training. And that really illustrates 
um, that, that kind of parasy- that sympathetic nervous system response or panicking or fight or flight response, because, you know, those guys are dealing with such a high level of stress that, um, they basically, tr- they train more than, than, you know, they see combat for the most part, but they train to be at their best at their worst. If that sure. makes sense, they, sure. they want to be able to, if, you know, if you're going into clear building, like they, there's no question. It's like, they're just operating on that thing that they've done, you know, thousands of times making it and second in nature the survival world. Yeah, totally making it second nature. And, and in the survival world, you know, there's a lot of, unfortunately there's a lot of talk and there's, there's not always a lot of like actually doing it to back it up. There's a lot of uh, people out there that, that don't put in the training time that they need to put in. And, and you know, that's fine for them. But I, I do think that if they were to end up in a survival situation without, you know, practicing making fire or, or practicing your, your wilderness first aid skills, I, I do think that expecting to be able to perform those without practicing them is, uh, is unrealistic. And, and I think as traditional bow hunters, everybody listening to this can relate to that because how many of us don't shoot all year, pick up our bow and expect to just shoot lights out? Like yeah. Nobody. No. Right. So yeah. it, we, we practice diligently every day so that when the time comes, no matter the situation, we can do what needs to be done and make that, that perfect shot or, or do it to our, the best of our ability. And it's the same thing with survival. Um, so practicing all this stuff is really valuable and really important and thinking about it and, and everything that goes into it. Um, you know, it, it's not just a skill that you do once and then you can rely upon it. It's really similar to traditional archery in that sense. So anyway, to, to, to get into kind of these, the skills that I teach in these classes, um, the classes are really based around that, that shelter, water, fire, food. Um, and, they're based around that because of the rule of threes, right? And because of, um, you know, the, that those are the things we need to stay alive and, and uh, that's why we're going to do them. Um, so anyway, shelter always comes first. And the reason shelter comes first is because, um, you know, exposure is the number one cause of death when people do get lost in outdoor recreation. Uh, I think in the national park system, the number one cause of death is falling due to selfies. So everybody watch out if you're no. fences and taking pictures with your cell phone. No, no. Uh, that's actually, um, we actually had a young man uh, die here on the Oregon coast last year. I believe it was, maybe it was the year before last taking a selfie uh, on the cliffs out, out at the beach and, and fell to his death. So that's, I've, I've, I actually, uh, some of my kids knew the, the young man that did that. So that, that is a real thing. That is, uh, you really have to, yeah, uh, it is. It, yeah. It, yeah, it's really um, taking unnecessary risk. It really illustrates kind of the modern dilemma that we've got ourselves into. But um, so as far as the, the exposure goes, right? So the first thing I get into is shelter. And, you know, with shelter, I like to talk about, uh, start off with, you know, how does your body lose heat, right? Like, because when we're talking about a shelter, we're talking about heating we're not, we haven't made a fire yet. And so our heat source is our own body heat. And so we're, we're talking about calories and water creating metabolic heat, right? That's radiating off of our body. And we're and with shelter. We're talking about trapping that in, in the best kind of word for, for what that is. The mechanism of trapping body heat is insulation. And so the two main ways your body loses heat when it comes to sleeping outside in nature are conduction and convection. 
conduction is, is, is through the ground. And I have a feeling everybody listening and you and I both have experienced this before. There's a reason you carry a sleeping pad with your sleeping bag, right? Right. Like everybody's probably made the mistake of either not bringing a sleeping pad or having that thing pop on them and then freezing their butt off all night because the down or synthetic material in their bag is compressed and now their heat is getting sucked out through the ground. Um, I make that mistake every couple of years. So um, conduction is, is taking place through a solid surface. And then, and, and that's why, you know, again, hunters uh, tend to be more up on this stuff. Um, carrying a butt pad for glassing, that's not just for comfort. That's to insulate yourself from the ground, right? right. It serves a very practical purpose because otherwise it's really easy to get cold glassing if your body heat is just being sucked into the ground or dissipating into the earth. And so conduction is, is heat transfer through a solid surface, so through the ground. And the solution there is, is insulating yourself, uh, insulating yourself. And in the easiest kind of like, we'll get into insulation, but the easiest way to kind of um, define that would, as far as how to insulate yourself from the ground is just separate yourself from the ground with, with a pile of leaves or sagebrush or just get yourself up off the ground, whether it's with a butt pad, a sleeping pad, uh, your jacket, whatever it is, your backpack, like just don't be sitting on the ground. Cedar boughs. Um, or laying on yeah. the ground. Brush. Oh, yeah. cedar boughs. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Like think about bears, right? Like we think about animal, like when we, when we talk about these survival shelters, I think animals are a great example. Um, because when, when we notice occasionally, uh, I know for you tracking a lot of bears and, and our friend Preston Taylor, like oftentimes um, bears as well as wild hogs will create these like elaborate nests and beds and occasionally line them with material. Obviously bears have a lot of uh, a thick coat of uh, fur on them, but um, you know, pigs don't have as much hair. And so they have to have insulation beneath them and they create these really elaborate nests. And the reason they do that is, is specifically to insulate themselves from the ground. Um, so anyways, conduction is, is, is insulating yourself from the ground and convective heat loss, which is the secondary heat loss mechanism is, is what everybody knows is wind chill and, uh, everybody's experienced wind chill and the, how that applies to shelter is, is less so, um, wind chill in, in the sense that yes, you do want to be out of the wind and you do want to have a, your layers on, but it's more so trapping air around your body. And so what that looks like is basically making a giant pile of leaves and crawling inside of it. And that's what we call a Sasquatch sleeping bag, which is, you know, that's what you, you know about Bigfoot. Um, you know, Bigfoot is, uh, we've yet to tag out on them, but, uh, <laughs> they're around, right? So, um, so, so that when Bigfoot builds these big nests, that's apparently, and uh, so we call it a Sasquatch sleeping bag. Another term for it is like a, a dust bed or a leaf nest. But essentially, it's just, you know, you do your best to make a pile of leaves and you, you sandwich yourself in there. Um, typically, what that looks like is digging like a little trench out in the center so that you got some leaves beneath you and then just hopping in there and pulling them over the top of you. And, and the way that works is, is the leaves or cedar boughs or spruce boughs or sword ferns or whatever it is, the grass, um, sagebrush, whatever it is, um, 
it it has you know uh, dead airspace inside of it. Dead airspace are just they're small air pockets, right? The same way that our down insulation and synthetic insulation works. It's just on a uh, less efficient level, and so that big pile of material is what we call insulation. And the way that I define insulation is uh, any material that has a low weight to volume ratio, right? And the lower that weight to volume ratio is the more efficient that material is going to be at insulating. So if we think about like, you know, your, your sleeping bag, right? Like you have a real good down sleeping bag that you picked up last season. Um, I remember we were talking about it and it's probably one of the best bags you could own. And uh, it's, it's got some really high quality down in it. And, in that sleeping bag, I don't, I don't remember exactly like what temperature yours is rated to. It's a 20. Um, but 20. Okay. So, you know, that, those sleeping bags are packed with goose down. And what the goose down does is, is it just creates like, you know, fluff and fluff has dead airspace inside of it. And, um, dead airspace is a technical term, you know, and, and it can be kind of hard to envision, but a, another way to look at it is any material that's really fluffy or like, you know, when we think about a puffy jacket, right? Anything you, you, that you throw on or throw over you that is going to keep you really warm. And uh, in nature, that's going to be, you know, basically whatever you can find. Um, but the best would be dead uh, vegetation, ideally like, you know, pine needles, deciduous leaves, uh, dead ferns, stuff like that. Um, and, and the idea is that if you did get lost, you're just going to do your best to make the biggest pile you can. Um, and I don't want to even mention a specific, you know, number or volume of material because resourcefulness is like a mindset and survival that I think is, is really important and resourcefulness is doing the best you can with what you have. And so mentioning like, oh, you need six and a half feet or some arbitrary number, you know, that's cool. But, um, ultimately you're going to do whatever you can do. And you're just going to have to be okay with that. And so if you can get a foot of debris on the ground and curl up into the fetal position on top of that thing and wake up every hour and do jumping jacks and burpees and then crawl back down into and curl up into a ball, like you're going to make it, you know, if you can get eight feet of debris and curl inside, like you're going to be warm and you're probably going to fall asleep and wake up the next morning and feel like you had a great night's sleep. So Hmm. exactly how much you get isn't, necessary is kind of besides the point because it's more about the action of insulating yourself from the ground and from the air around you um i don't know if that was too technical but but uh no do you have any questions about any of that stuff i mentioned no that was that was some some great stuff and i i could honestly say that i didn't know half of that stuff so I'm, i'm learning as we go here i think this is great cool and so I think resourcefulness, this idea of resourcefulness is something that, um, you know, I, I could, we could bring up again here real quickly because um, everything that I'm going to talk about today, I think it's important for everyone to know that, you know, again, survival situations are constantly changing. Like you're never going to see the same situation twice. And we're talking about, you know, what could be a potentially life-threatening situation. Um, and particularly if, if you panic and begin to make, you know, poor decisions. So what about um, in a wet, what about in a wet climate, that debris shelter, is that going to work right. when, when, when it's, when it's pouring rain outside or, or snowing outside? Like what? Yeah. So that's a great, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. So 
the, my answer, if you were like at one of my classes and I had just, you know, talked about shelter would be like, well, what are your options? You know, like you're probably not going to get a fire going because it's wet. And, and yes, the answer is it will work. Um, and the answer is going to be like, you probably are going to be wet and cold and uncomfortable, but you will be warm enough to stay alive. Um, if you wet material that actually can insulate very, very well, because when vegetation gets wet, it doesn't lose its insulation value, like say down or synthetic material can, right? Because you need such a, a you need a really large volume of it. And leaves will compress a bit when they're wet, but but they're not going to get so compressed that they turn into like uh, you know, an entirely yeah. different um, mud. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you, you know, ultimately my answer would be like in a would be you know that that concept of resourcefulness and like you're going to do the best you can because your only other option is dying of hypothermia or being right. or, or potentially you know, um, which is the challenging part of teaching survival is. Sometimes the what ifs are, are tricky to address because the resourcefulness question is just this like reoccurring trend of like, that's where you're at. You're going to apply what I just talked about to the best of your ability. And the cool thing about that Sasquatch sleeping bag or that duck bed is that I guarantee everybody, even if they're injured, like if you're conscious and you and I was like, hey, you're going to die or you're going to make a pile of leaves like everybody can do that. Right. It's, yeah. like, it's fully attainable. Whereas if it's like, hey, you're going to die or you're going to rub all these sticks together to get fire, like that's way less attainable, right? Um, because it requires a certain amount of skill level prior to that experience or, or that situation. And so everybody has collected a pile of leaves before and everybody is capable of doing that, even if you have a broken leg. Um, and some tricks I could mention or tips that, um, you know, in case we move away from this here eventually is, one, um, if you d- ideally when you make your deathbed, you're you're stretched out. So the goal is is when you crawl into that pile of leaves, the goal is to be comfortable. Like we don't necessarily want to sacrifice comfort if we don't have to. And so I think everybody would prefer to sleep uh, stretched out rather than like stuffed up into a ball. But if you were like say you were up hunting desert mule deer up in the high country or sheep hunting or something, and you're in an environment where there's like mostly rocks, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and most of these places, these animals live, like there's gotta be sagebrush or grass or something like they're eating something like no animal can live off of rocks. Right. right. So there's something there within, you know, your, you know, line of sight. Usually if you're going into a location where there's not, then you better be prepared because there's no way you can fall back on this stuff in, in if you're like, you know, somehow in an environment where there's nothing, which there's not very many of those, but like escape. Yeah. 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 I know, I know I carry, I carry, um, I always keep a 55 gallon contractors, like thick plastic bag, uh, folded up in my day pack. Even if it, if I'm going bare, bare, bare minimum, I always have that with me because I, I feel like that could, um, act as a, uh, a meat bag, you know, so I don't get blood in my bag when I'm packed, if I, you know, uh, kill something or it can help me, you know, gather up a bunch of debris or I can have a place to put whatever I run into. Or, uh, I, I've even spent the night in the woods and made that a, a way to keep myself dry. Um, and not because I was lost just because the elk were bugling and I didn't want to, didn't want to leave them. So, 
I think that's yeah. like a really good thing to have with you. Uh, maybe a space blanket. I usually have a little space blanket. Um, and then that contractor bag and, and man, I can tell you in a pinch that that has made my night out, out in the bush, um, more comfortable when I didn't intend to, you know, backpack somewhere or camp somewhere. Oh, absolutely. I think that those contractor bags, um, can be, you know, used, they're very versatile. You could use it as a pack cover. You could use it as a poncho. You could cut that thing and you could use it as a tarp over a pile of insulation. Right. Like you could use it as a, as a vapor barrier in between you and the ground. Or if you're in a snowy environment, digging a snow cave, like plastic is endlessly useful. And in the survival world, you know, there's a lot of these kits, like people get hung up on kits. And, and I think what I tell people is like, Hey, if, if, that's great if you want to buy like a really elaborate survival kit, but just do me a favor. If you're going to do that, learn it, right. learn how to use that thing. Um, the best analogy would be like a first aid kit. You know what I mean? Like when you see those big, you know, the ones that I carry, they're pretty elaborate. And like, what's the, it's like, why is someone carrying a fan splint if they don't even know how to use it? Or, uh, you know, it's like bear spray. Like, why are you carrying bear spray if it's in the bottom of your backpack? Right. Like <laughs> it's right. not going to be very helpful at that For point. For sure. So carrying stuff that you are very comfortable with, familiar with, and, and doesn't feel so special that it's like you're afraid to use it, um, I think it's important to carry that kind of stuff. Um, cause, and, and the reason I say it's not so special or that you're afraid to use it is a lot of these survival kits, you know, it's like a one-time use tool of right. some kind or you got to break it apart to make it work. And, you know, all of those serve very um, specific purposes and they're excellent tools. But, but I do think that, you know, you have to practice with them. It's just like shooting your broadheads, you know, right. You're going to, if you, if you can't sharpen a broadhead, then you're kind of in trouble. You got to carry a whole bunch of extra ones with you to pop on your arrows. And you know what I mean? It's like, you got to get good at shooting them, uh, before you even go hunting with them. There's, there's a lot of that, uh, crossover, it goes back um, to, 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 to de- your gear. it goes back to developing the skill set, you know, AKA woodsmanship yeah. skills, um, not just yeah, relying, the, more you know, the less you need, right. And the more you take exactly. into the woods, the, the less you take into the woods, the more you come out with. I like that one a lot too. Um, but yeah, I think that contractor yeah, bag really is, is a great one. I mean, you can even use it as we're talking. I was thinking about how you could use that to gather all of your insulation uh, before you, you know, yeah. while you're building your building your bed and, and then using it as a vapor barrier below you or above you or, or, um, or whatnot. So yeah, I think that that's a cheap one and easy one to use. I think everyone, if you, if you're not already carrying one of those and it, it's, it's, it's kind of a no brainer to have oh, that yeah. in your bag. Especially for meat packing. Like yeah. even if you're not going to use it for survival, like I carry a couple garbage bags or at least a car- contractor bag in, yeah. in my, uh, you know, kill kit or whatever. So that, um, when I do go to process that animal, uh, you know, it's easy if when things get all bloody, if it's, a, you know, if it's fat, if the fat gets all over everything, if it's a bear or a hog, like we all, we have all experienced that and it just keeps the, it, yeah. And it keeps get a, a better end product. Yeah. And keep it cleaner. Yeah. You can lay your meat out on the bag, uh, while you're, even if you have meat bags there, you'll all get that bag out so I can lay the back straps and stuff while I'm butchering. And then, put them into the beat mags and hang them in trees or whatever. But yeah, it's just, it's just a great barrier to have and it's inexpensive and, and, um, you know, you can put them into a fanny pack or a small day bag or whatever. So 
if you don't already have that. Oh, yeah, it could be in your back pocket. Yeah, it's a great, great one to yeah. have. Cool. Um, yeah, that's so, a good one to carry. And in, so the last thing I want to mention, um, what I was going to say before we move on from, from shelter or if you have any other questions about it, it's just I just wanted to, to, to uh, just kind of throw a scenario out there. Um, so, yeah, if you are in the high country and you are in a really rough environment, what, what taking action for shelter would look like um, would be uh, basically getting out of the wind, right, which is what a lot of us do when we're glassing. You know, you want to try and find a glassing spot where you're not just if the wind is ripping like that's step one. Find a spot you can glass from where you're not just going to be annihilated by the wind unless you've got a bunch of layers on. Um, so get out of the wind and then do your best to insulate yourself from the ground, like whatever you can do. If it's sagebrush, it's gr that's great. If it's grass, that's great. If you have to move down to tree line, then you have to move down to tree line, but you got to get up off the ground. And the last thing I wanted to say is yes, we want to be comfortable and we want to sleep stretched out. And that, and that's something you can 100% do if you have, you know, obviously your sleeping bag or if you can collect enough material to make a big dust bed or a Sasquatch sleeping bag. But if you can't, Curling up into the fetal position will actually retain 70% of your, of your long wave radiation heat loss, which is basically your body heat, right? And so curling up into a ball, though uncomfortable, is extremely efficient. And in a true emergency, it could be getting out of the wind, ripping up a pile of brush, laying down on top of it, putting all your clothes on, throwing that contractor bag over you or crawling in, you know, inside of it, potentially if it's raining, and curling up into a ball. Now, you know, any plastic or vapor barrier could, could cause condensation issues, but we're talking about staying alive. And I think most of us hunters are all on the same page when it comes to clothing and the right clothing. And as traditional archers, we have a very, we've been steeped in, in wearing wool, wearing the, the right clothes and, you know, um, clothing is, is important and wearing the right clothes is important. And I think the old blue jeans and flannel thing is awesome, especially if it's a wool flannel, but, but those blue jeans, when they get wet, man, you're losing, you're not going to, they're not going to be doing a whole lot for you. At that point, you might as well just take them off. Yeah. Cause mm -hmm. they're made out of cotton, cotton, and, cotton and, kills. You know, I think cotton kills. Yeah. yeah. And I think everybody knows that. And so it's not something we have to talk too deeply about um, that information's out there, but so wearing the right clothes and it is really important. They don't have to be expensive. You could pull a Colton Gimlin and just go to, uh, or Gilman and go to, go to uh, the Goodwill or whatever, you know, like, uh, like he yeah. does, he's sponsored yeah. by a uh, Goodwill. I think he told me. So yeah. anyways, yeah. you can Car go to Carson, a lot, a lot of tell guys. Them Colton send you. Yeah. 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 Tell them Colton sent you and you're going to get like 20% off and uh, pick out all the flannels and wool clothes you want. You know, the old school way used to be military surplus stores. But yeah, wear the right clothes. That's all I want to say. I don't need to, we don't have to spend too much time on that because everyone knows. What about uh, obtaining water? I know like um, he, my situation is I live somewhere where there's water isn't abundant. And I uh, have been guilty, like, you know, I run out of water and I don't have a way to filter water. Um, I'm almost like going without water, you know, until like Preston has kind of showed me where you can find wild, you know, where you can take your chances with wild water and how to obtain that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I, I, I'm like talk about that. too scared to drink this water. Yeah. And then I'm going thirsty and now I'm getting a headache and, and um, you, you I mean, you know, you can't hold us to this this stuff, but you you got to kind of use your head when it comes to this. But yeah, let's let's get into water. 
Yeah, that's um, let's do it. So the 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 context that we're talking in here is kind of we're talking to hunters, right? Right. And so we're all out there looking for animals, and so typically, as far as hunting goes, you know, if there's water, then if there's animals, there's water for the most part, right? Because um, as everybody knows, like how many of those giant bucks in Arizona are killed over water? Like, yeah. I don't know, all of them, most of them. Yeah. That's why the trail camera ban um, happened part of it, which I'm really excited about. And so anyways, if there's wildlife, there's water. And so compared to like hikers and stuff, I think us hunters are a little bit less likely to find ourselves in, in landscapes that are completely void of water. But that being said, let's just, well, let's just assume, right? Well, yeah, uh, so I mean, I've as hunted, far as water goes, I've hunted elk in, in, yeah, uh, in, in the high country where water is hard to come by. I mean, the, it, it's hidden, let's say, you know, it's the, the mm-hmm. water sources are not abundant. And so that, that, and I think that guys that hunt some high country elk and mule deer, um, yeah, there's water around, but it's, it's not in every draw. It's not coming out of every, uh, seep. So, um, there's a different, yeah, I can relate. I can relate. Cause, cause where I live, you know, hunting deer and, and currently in the last 10 years in California, we've had just a super severe drought. And so, um, water's just been harder and harder to come by, um, Finding water is going to be, uh, as far as locating a water source, uh, there's a little bit as far, there's some general rules of thumb that I'm going to go over, um, but it it will, there will be kind of unique tricks for every environment. And I think something we'll probably talk about later and that I've noticed been a trend on on your guys' show, which I really enjoy, is just learning about the place that you're in, right? Developing a connection to it. And locating water is, is Part of, part of locating water is is learning about your landscape, right, in the long term. But that being said, you know, a lot of us travel to hunt, and so there are some general rules of thumb. The first thing I like to talk about with water is is just, you know, whether or not it's safe to drink and why we even disinfect it in the first place. Um, you know, there are a number of different waterborne pathogens, and, and the main reason, I would say the most dangerous one is Giardia which is probably the primary reason we end up disinfecting our water uh, in the backcountry. Um, although, you know, leptospirosis and cryptosporidium are also common and can also make you uncomfortable. Uh, Giardia is the one that's known to cause amoebic dysentery. Um, although I'm, I'm not a doctor, the CDC does say that Giardia has an incubation period of, you know, five days to three weeks plus. Um, there's a lot of variables when you're drinking infected water, right? Because, you know, Giardia is, uh, is either, uh, I think it's a protozoa or it might be an amoeba, but it's a very small organism that we can't see with our eyeballs, right? So when you're drinking water, a water out of a water source that you're not sure is cleaner, that you're not sure if it's clean or not, you know, whether you get sick, part of that has to do with how, how infected the water source is, right? And so mm-hmm. there could, you, that sip of water could have two you know, um, uh, protozoa or amoebas in it, or it could have 10 million. And so that's why some of the stuff I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, the rules of thumbs, a lot of it takes that into consideration that we're doing our best to reduce our exposure to waterborne pathogens, because let's face it, sometimes we can't disinfect our water. Um, it's just not 
a possibility in that moment in time. And in order to disinfect your water, you either need chemical disinfection, uh, some type of purification device, whether that's a filter, a SteriPen, Lystraw, um, you know, chlorine dioxide or iodine ta- tablets. Uh, you need some something, whether it's a chemical or a tool or, or a fire to boil it. Um, but anyways, you need something to disinfect your water, right? And if you don't have that, then you're not disinfecting your water. So there are primitive ways to do it. But to be honest with you, they uh, require a lot of, you know, certain skills to get to that place. And, and I, I believe that if you are lost and you are chronically dehydrated, you're better off just drinking that water, whether it's infected or not because the likelihood of you dying of dehydration is far greater than you dying from amoebic dysentery prior to being rescued. Um, if that makes sense. So I don't think anyone should be negligent, but I do think that in, in a, in a dry environment, um, if you come across a puddle or, you know, some stagnant water that looks really foul and you're super dehydrated and you're lost and people are looking for you, like I'm going to drink that water. I'm going to do my best to reduce my odds of getting sick using some of the strategies that I'm going to talk about here. But at the end of the day, I'm just trying to stay alive. And, and if I get rescued and I get sick, fine, I'll go get antibiotics and I'll be okay. You know what I mean? So anyways, I just wanted to preface it with that, that if you were in that bad spot, you're just going to drink. Right. Um, and, and so as far as kind of the rules of thumb, as far as locating water goes, uh, I look for what I teach people is to look for ecological indicators and ecological indicators are basically uh, topography, um, vegetation and plants and wildlife or, or uh, I mean, flora and fauna. Right. So, so we can say topography and flora and fauna. Mm-hmm. So as far as topography goes, water's found on the lowest point of the landscape. So, so unless you're looking for snowmelt, we're traveling downhill. We're looking in, in the canyons, you know, that's where all the elk wallows and hog wallows are found. In the draw. Um, and sometimes in the draw, exactly. So you got to look down um, and you got to go down to look for them. Now, before you travel down into that deep canyon, if you can look and, and you say you're in the desert or you're in open country, you know, you can look for uh, bright green, dense growing yeah. vegetation. Get your binos where out. Where you live, that might not as a yeah. Where you live, yeah. Get your binos out. Everybody's got binos, right? Look down in there and see if you can one see water or or animal trails going into that draw. And two, if you're in like an otherwise arid environment, look for something that stands out, like contrasting uh, color. So bright, dense green growing vegetation. Specifically, I look for certain certain plants and trees like willow, uh, aspen, rushes, cottonwood, uh, yeah, rushes, red alder. Those are some some sedges, cattail, tule, sedges. Yeah, like again, like the more you know about nature, you can learn. Like there's all these organisms have specific needs, right? And you can be like, oh, the sedges need water to survive. I see sedges with my glass down in the bottom of that canyon. There's water down there. Yep. Now, just because there's water for the sedges to drink doesn't mean it's surface water. Um, so you might have to dig a little bit for it. But anyways, we'll get into that. So you're going to look in, down in the draws. You're going to look for vegetation, bright, dense, green-growing vegetation. You know, if there's a lot of animal trails leading down into there, there's a good chance there's water. You want to go down there, check it out. Um, you know, as far as, like, mitigating risk of getting sick goes, uh, the rule of thumb is you want to do your best to avoid slow-moving, warm, stagnant water. Um, 
technically the larger the body of water, the more likely it's going to carry some type of waterborne pathogen. And so you typically want to avoid like large rivers or large creeks, um, ponds, lakes, things of that nature. Uh, because from a statistic, from a point of view of, uh, statistically speaking, you know, watersheds start as small springs, right? And they come together and they create bigger springs. And then those come together and create creeks and those come together to create rivers and lakes. And so the bigger the body of water you're drinking from, you're technically drinking from, you know, potentially thousands or more smaller bodies of water. And only one of those needs to be infected for you to be getting sick drinking out of that creek. Are you tracking? Yep. Yep. Okay. So, so by drinking out of a small body of water, you're already reducing your odds. So if you do find a big river, maybe walk upstream a little bit, look for a tributary that's flowing into it. Um, you don't have to go very far upstream, you know, 20 yards is, is plenty. Um, but, but the smaller body of water you can drink out of the better. Yep. Uh, what I tell people is you want to look for small, fast flowing, ice cold, crystal clear water sources. So yep. um, if you can find a, a small, fast flowing, ice cold, crystal clear water source, uh, you're going to be significantly reducing your risk. Um, now, that's just surface water. And surface water only makes up a small percentage of water sources in an environment. So say, you know, you're hiking along and you find and you end up in a draw and it's really wet and there's a bunch of ferns and sedges and you step on the ground and you can hear that squish, like there's water beneath your feet. And in, in a lot of times in those, in those places, there's either some bedrock that traps the water under there or there's actually an aquifer if it's on a hillside that is kind of like leaking into the hillside. And in that situation, you could just get down on your hands and knees, dig a little hole and let it sit. Usually it'll fill up with water, let the dirt settle, stick your face down in there and just drink from it. Um, and, and that's a, a very safe water source. You know, it's, I'm not going to say it's 100% safe to drink, but it's a very low probability of you getting sick drinking from ground water sources. Um, now, if you were, say you broke, you roll, rolled your ankle or something like that and and you got down on this big river and, you know, for some reason you, you, uh, it, you get down on some big water source, whether that's a lake or a river and, and you don't want to drink out of that water source itself. Um, you can still, you know, I would recommend it is drinking out of it if you're severely dehydrated and just taking that risk. But if you can, what you could do is dig what we call a seep hole. Um, they were traditionally called artesian wells. And basically it's similar to what I just talked about that, you, you know, where you just mm. take a little hole in the ground. But the idea is, is you're going to find an area like what we would, you know, imagine you're with like your family or your friends, like a spot that you would think of as like a beach, kind of mm -hmm. an area that has a very gradual slope coming out from the water source. Um, it could be mud. It doesn't matter what kind of soil type it is necessarily. But, but the reason you have to find a gradual uh, slope and it can't be a really steep bank is because what you're going to do is dig a hole that goes through the ground and actually goes beneath the water level. And so if it's a really steep bank, you might have to dig like a four foot deep hole, which is a complete waste of time and energy at that point. So anyways, you're going to find a beach. You want to find a nice level spot. If you can find a spot that's, that's really gradual, then you can go like 10 or 12 feet away from that water source, you know, dig a little hole in the ground, you know, pick up a stick. You never want to dig with your hands because you could accidentally cut yourself. So, you know, grab a stick, dig a hole in the ground. And eventually, you know, once you start getting to elbow depth, it's 
water should start leaking into that hole. A lot of that depends on the angle of the bank, right? The steeper the bank, the deeper the hole, um, the closer you'll have to be to the water source. But the concept behind it is that the ground is going to be acting like a filter. Mm. Now, it's not going to be nearly as efficient as a filter, but the idea is that you're just mitigating risk by reducing your odds of getting sick by using the ground to actually filter out potentially some of that protozoa or that bacteria or those amoebas that would be in the water source itself. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that, the, that's called the sea pool. Sea pool. Okay. That's great. Yeah. Great advice. And like you said, also, if you have the ability to look for where that water's coming from, usually like here in the, uh, Oregon coast, you got water, it's abundant, but like you say, you, you go to the draw that's feeding that, that, that river and you're going to have a Creek and you go up that Creek and you're going to find secondary draws that are going to be what we call tributaries that are feeding that. And the smaller that water source, often here you can find where it's just coming out of the ground. And man, when I find yeah, that, I'm, I'm filling up my water bottle. I don't care about the filter. I, I want to drink that wild water. It's, it's delicious and it's full of minerals. And um, yeah, I've, yeah, you know, and I used to not have that education and, and, you know, just push myself to get back to the truck to drink water. Now I'm, it's kind of fun to find good, safe, wild water to drink. Oh yeah, for sure. I, if I can drink out of a spring, I'm drinking out of a spring. Uh, the less treatment I have to do, the better. Um, and, uh, you know, I drink a lot of wild water and, um, just because of my career, I'll, you know, sometimes I'll, you know, just experiment with different water sources when I'm not in the back country, just to kind of see what my reaction is. And, mm -hmm. and if uh, I'm obviously not going to go drinking out of somebody's septic tank or like a big river with a bunch of houses around it. But I have um, been pleasantly surprised over my lifetime at, at the fact that uh, I've drank out of water that I deemed questionable and, and didn't get sick. Um, that being said, you know, I think it is important to exercise caution um, when it comes to drinking water. But if you can find those little springs and seeps uh, and, and wild water, I, I think you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and I, it, I do the same thing as you. And in a, like a dry, uh, arid climate or in a big burn or, you know, high desert or even low desert, it, it's pretty apparent uh, where those oases are. I mean, you, the, the, there'll be a green patch somewhere. Um, and where that water is present and, and you just, you go, you go there and capitalize on it. Yeah. And it's funny talking about that and hearing you say that because like, uh, I, I usually have to spend a lot of time describing that to, uh, normal people because I think, I think hunters and you particularly, you know, know your landscape very well. And that's part of learning the place that you're in. And, and that's an excellent example of like how knowing more about the place you're in could potentially save your life or, you know, keep you from getting sick from drinking funky water. Um, and, and know, locating so a lot games, of people don't right? even know what a tributary is. Yeah. And locating game, like just scouting, like learning yeah. where your water sources is, is usually a, a component of scouting. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's cool those, talking about it in the context of hunting. Yeah, because those water sources, those, that, that, uh, those uh, 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 flora and fauna are going to be generally, you know, nutrient-dense nutrient food sources for game. Um, so not only just the water, yeah. but the, they're, they're going to be feeding in those areas as well. Yeah, 
for sure. And I think, yeah, it's cool talking about it in that context. I, I don't end up teaching hunters as much. Um, and so just like you saying what you just said is, is great to hear because um, a lot of times, you know, I, I have to spend a bunch of time like describing that. <laughs> and sure. I think everybody that's listening probably has a picture in their mind's eye of, of a burn and, and what a seep looks like in a burn or what water looks like down in a canyon when there's thick vegetation. And so it's cool. And it makes it a little bit easier for me to speak and describe what you would do and, and how to locate water and, and mitigate risk around drinking water um, when you can't disinfect it. Um, let's, let's touch on fire real quick. I know that um, I don't have, I mean, I, I, I I'm, I don't have skill set to make fire if I don't have a lighter or uh, or flint or something, and I'm usually pretty smart to keep something on me uh, so that I can make fire. Is it really without the practice? I mean, is a guy going to find a way to to create fire with without one of those tools? No, I didn't think um, so. I. I don't think that uh, friction, I think friction fire is a really valuable skill, but the the reason that I teach friction fire uh, is so that, I mean, I, I get almost a hundred percent success rate on my students with the bow drill within two hours of it being introduced to them. Um, and so they're making embers, but whether they could repeat that in, a, in an emergency situation uh, is, you know, I, I would say if I would say it's unlikely that to repeat that without a lot of practice. Um, so as far as fire making goes, I, I do think that uh, you need to be carrying some type of emergency fire starting kit with you. Um, if you truly want to have something to light a fire to, to save your life. I'm not a big fan of building a fire to sleep next to, but I, I do know that there are environments that I've been in where if it's so cold and it's so windy and there's snow on the ground that like the best option is getting in like a tree well or under a tree and, and getting a fire going to warm up. Um, I think a lot of the, the thing, I think with survival, when we're talking about fire, I do think that sometimes people overlook the amount of stress um, and discomfort they may be in uh, when they're actually needing to light that fire. And so when you are talking about building your, your fire starting kit or, or having your, your emergency preparedness kit, um, I think it's important to envision having to use those tools in a really bad situation, whether maybe you broke your dominant hand or whether you have, you know, your hands are so numb from being cold or soaking wet, whatever it might be. I, I do think it's important to, to consider that when you're picking, you know, the tools that you are going to use to light a fire. Um, and then I also think it's important to practice with those tools. And so what I tell people to do is, is, you know, I don't think there's anything, I mean, I think it's cool to be able to rub sticks together to make fire. I can do it a bunch of different ways and I can go walk around right now. I could walk outside and snap some sticks off a tree and rub them together and get fire. But, um, you know, I, I still carry a lighter. Um, so I'm a big believer in carrying a lighter. Is, so, is, yeah, is, I can tell you what I think. The light, the lighter is what I, is my go-to. And I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, that can fail. Um, you know, what, it, what is the, what, what's your go-to if you're going to have one source to make fire that's going to be reliable and, and, you know, compact and not take up a lot of uh, weight or room in your kit? Yeah. So as far as fire, 
fire starting, I, I do think that there's a little bit there of that's personal preference. Um, but what I would recommend for most people would be like a, a big lighter or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they do make, you know, storm proof lighters and windproof lighters and those are awesome too. Um, I don't have, you know, I haven't purchased a whole bunch of them and, and I've always just used either a Bic or I used to be a big believer um, in those like clear lighters where you can adjust the flame. Um, I really like those because you could see the fuel in the lighter so you could know what you're working with. And then I also like the ability, the, the idea of being able to, to just have a giant flame, right? Like the bigger that flame is, the better off you're going to be at lighting a fire. Um, so either a big lighter or one of those clear ones with the adjustable flame. Um, but I think in conjunction with a lighter, I, I think it's important to carry accelerant. Um, because if we're truly talking about this as like a life and death situation of you being able to get that fire going, uh, having an accelerant is really valuable. And there's a lot of different types of accelerants. And what an accelerant is, is it's just a really volatile material that will light on fire extremely easily. And, and once it's lit, it's going to be extremely hard to put out. Typically, they only burn for, from like five to ten, five minutes, maybe ten minutes if it's a real good one. Um, I use basically, uh, it's a modern made accelerant that, that's like, a, it's called a fire plug. And it's uh, basically a paraffin wax um, impregnated cotton with a lot of volatile oils in there that are, that are really flammable. So um, what I do is I take one of those and shred them apart. Um, the uh, old school, you know, um, version of that would be a cotton ball soaked in Vaseline, mm-hmm. um, which those also work. They're not nearly as well. Uh, they don't work nearly as well as, as kind of these newer fire starting accelerants. Okay. But um, there's a lot of commercially made ones. Some of them are similar to like a, an alcohol swab that you would have in your first aid kit. Um, and Dry, so, dryer lint. I've anyways. heard of people using. Um, I, I know. What oh, yeah. Dryer lint works. I know where I live, uh, you know, locating fat wood or, um, you know, pitchy, you know, uh, cedar or whatever, you know, that, that stuff can just pine. Um, you can, you can harvest some of that stuff and, and really get, get things going fast. Yeah. If you can, if you can locate pine sap or spruce sap or any conifer sap, you're, you, that's a great natural accelerant, especially in conjunction with uh, any type of like tinder or like fluffed up cedar bark or, in, or you know, some grasses, um, maybe some dryer lint, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the only downside is that, you know, you'd have to find those things, right. which I mean, that's part of developing your woodsmanship is learning and being able to use those things. But when I teach this stuff, I, I talk about it kind of like, I was never a big video game person, but like in order, it, it's un, you're unlocking levels. So by putting in time and learning about a place, you unlock different levels of, of, of basically resources. Hmm. And so the more you learn, the more that's going to be available to you, right? Because not so long ago, like every, everything we needed for survival, we were getting from nature. Right. We've definitely lived as a species in nature longer than we've lived outside of it. Um, and we're still physiologically designed to live in nature. And so I think that's why a lot of us as bow hunters and traditional bow hunters, I think there's something deep inside of us that, that, uh, that kind of drives us to do that. But anyway, as far as fire goes, I, I do believe in the modern accelerants um, from an emergency standpoint, just because 
it's in your back pocket, right? Like you don't have to find it. You don't need a light. You can just whip that thing out, you know, grab a bunch of sticks and get that thing lit. Now in your environment, especially fire starting is extremely challenging. Yes. And so in your environment, there's a couple of like rules that you probably follow. One of them is you never collect your firewood off the ground, at least initially, right? So right. you're kindling to get your fire lit. You want to avoid collecting anything that's laying on the ground because especially if it's wet out, even if it's dry out, anything touching the ground is going to have a lot more moisture in it than anything that's like standing dead or branches that are attached to trees. So, so usually, you know, you're looking for a hemlock tree and you're going under there or, or dug fir and you're breaking off a bunch of those really small pencil lead thickness branches. Um, and so you don't want to collect off the ground. Uh, that's, that's a really important one. You want to be really meticulous about collecting everything you need before you go ahead and light your fire. Um, that way it's all there, you know, and once then you can get it lit and you can get that fire burning. So it's not going to go out. And then you can kind of walk around looking for bigger sticks to start drying out and, uh, and keep your fire going. But I think the mistake I see people make is, is they rush it. And I think when you're making a fire, it's important to just take a deep breath and, and, Take your time because if you do it right, you only have to do it once. And I can't yeah. tell you how many times I've, I've done like a one match fire drill, which is like where you give someone one match, you know, and you say, hey, okay, you got five minutes, get a fire going. And even really high level, you know, Boy Scouts or people who, who possess or, you know, have a lot of experience, I, I've seen them fail. Yeah. Um, well, and so. It can happen to any of us. It can. It can. And I, I want to share a, a little story with everybody listening um, because this is serious stuff. And, and what I urge you to do is to make sure that your fanny pack, your day pack, whatever it is that you, you know, that you take on your hunts, you know, we're talking to hunters here. Um, don't make this pack so elaborate or so don't make it an inconvenience to the point where you don't want to take it with you. And I'm going to share a quick story. Um, there's a man that, uh, just lived down the road from where I live now. His name is Sean Higgins, 41 years old. And him and his son, Trevor Higgins, uh, were hunting blacktail deer, uh, in late October. And this is a very, they were up in the, um, Southern Oregon, uh, kind of a wilderness area, Shasta Costa drainage, um, down there near the Rogue River. And uh, Sean uh, was known to be, he's a, a friend of a friend. Uh, a lot of my friends were good friends with Sean. I'd met Sean a handful of times. And he was known, they called him Dr. Blacktail. Um, one heck of a hunter, an outdoorsman. And uh, they would hunt by themselves and get back together for lunch or, or dinner and uh, on this particular hunt, uh, there I believe there was four of them hunting. Um, they decided to not take their bags, not to take their GPS units, not to take, you know, they had they had packs that had everything they needed in them, but but uh, for whatever reason they forgot taking those with them. And and um, Sean came up missing, and uh, Trevor went looking for him, and Trevor came up missing. And through search and rescue parties and helicopter, I mean, this weather came in and it didn't stop for months, this weather. And uh, we were, uh, search and rescue was able to rescue uh, his son. 
Uh, Trevor, four days later, uh, severe hypothermia, and he was close to uh, to passing. And his father w- was never found to this day. Um, they never found him. Not not the next summer. Not the next year. Uh, not not search dogs. Um, he's never been found. His wife recently, um, I think it's been, oh, it was 2016. So it's been five years and she's just recently been able to obtain a death certificate for Sean. Um, and this is a very experienced hunter and, and you think, ah, you know, that would never happen to me. Uh, let me tell you, I went out there with hundreds of people looking for him these were hunters, you know, and, and, and we had all our gear on and we, people had their dogs and we brought in trained dogs and, and, you know, we, he was never found. So it's, it's serious business and this can happen to you and don't leave your gear behind because they had everything they needed to survive and, um, they didn't have it with them and, and it cost, uh, it cost on his life. Yeah, and that's a, that's a that's a real sad story, and unfortunately, that's that that same story has happened, you know, hundreds or thousands of times to hunters all over the place. And there's always like common trends, and that that initial mistake is is leaving your gear at the at the car. Yeah, um, and it it's especially hard for us hunters because I think you know in this in the survival world as far as avoiding ending up in a survival situation a big part of that is telling somebody where you're going and when you're going to be back and in the hunting community that's just you don't usually do that because that's sharing your spot which isn't right. a problem necessarily but a lot of us don't make a habit out of like sending gps locations to our buddies before we go out there um and and some of us you know carry a you know emergency beacons like a Garmin inReach or yep. something like that, just in case something were to happen. And, and that's a really smart thing to do because if you were to fall out of a tree stand, if so, if something were to happen, you get gored by an animal, like that's, let's face it, that might be the only tool you have that's actually going to get you out of there. Because there are certain situations where the skills are, are great, but you need medical attention. Absolutely. And so um, a big part of, of, of not forgetting your pack is, is like you said, don't make it so big and elaborate yes. that you're not carrying it. And yep. that's a mistake that all of us have made where we're like, man, this thing's heavy. It's cumbersome. It's annoying. And yep. I know you and I are constantly talking about different pack options because we're always thinking like, oh, it would be really convenient to have this little small bag or this. We're always trying to downsize so that it's something convenient to have with us. Something uh-huh. that we'll just always have on our back. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. uh, and so, the less you take into the woods, the more you come out with. But you do need to have the right things with you and and take the basics with you that can get you. I, I always want to go deep and further. You know, I feel like in into the evening when I'm chasing elk and just having that little bag on me, knowing I got a water filter, I've got a lighter, I've got a, a plastic bag, I've got a space blanket, I've got uh, some bars, I've got a small first aid kit, just the small basic things and not overwaving it with seven knives and you know a bunch of stuff i don't need but just having the basics uh it'll get you to the night comfortably and there's no reason not to put yourself in a position where you don't have that yeah especially with hunting because uh, we've all when you're hunting you might shoot an animal last light 
you know, in the evening happens all the time. And you might not be back to your vehicle if you're successful until two in the morning yeah. or, or later potentially, because you're yeah. now dealing with that animal. And, and I know it happens to me every year during deer season. Um, it happens when I'm pig hunting all the time where I'm up almost all night because I'm, you know, I was successful and now I have to deal with that animal. And, uh, I just plan when I set up my pack and leave my car, you know, a lot of times it's convenient. Like, well, I'm only a mile or two away or, or, you know, I'll, I'll just leave this stuff in the car and come back and get it. But I, I don't do that. I, I carry my stuff with me because I know that, you know, it might be dark out and trying to travel all the way back to the vehicle is unrealistic. And maybe we both hunt out of tree stands a lot. I know. Um, and, and so if I fall out of my tree stand, if something bad happens, like I, I want to have everything I need with me and accessible. Um, and, and I certainly don't want to leave it in my vehicle because uh, it's too heavy or too complicated or annoying to carry. Um, it's important to, to invest either your, your, you know, careful thinking and thought into setting up that, that equipment that you carry with you in your day pack or your, or your bag or your time or your money into it. So that you don't leave it in your vehicle because tell, without your survival kit, it's useless. And tell your wife or your girlfriend or your roommate or whatever, you know, hey, I'm, you, you may not know where you're going that day, but you usually know a general, you know, within 100,000 acres. You're like, hey, I'm going to this wilderness or I'm going to this, uh, this forest. And um, this is a good contact of someone that isn't going to be in that, you know, like I'll say, hey, Call uh, call Dan Draper. Here's his phone number. Um, if I don't, you know, come back here in a few days, like this guy will will know. And once you find my car, he will know where I'm at. Like, you know, leave a contact. It, it, yeah. it, it can be real general because um, you never know. You might be moving around, but at least they have an idea of where to start looking. Um, that that could be. Uh, yeah, and that's really important. Cause you guys have heard, had stories of, of guests that you've interviewed where they were lucky to survive, yeah. um, an accident. And, yeah. and so I, I make a habit out of that and, and giving contacts of information, just like you said. Um, and you know, it's like, Hey, if you don't, if I'm not home in the morning or if I'm on a backpack hunt or whatever, if I, if you don't hear from me, like this is who to call and, right. and you got to set that stuff up beforehand. I'm always good about this with hunting, but um, I can share a quick one where I was out. Look, I was out uh, foraging for mushrooms, um, uh, actually picking them commercially to sell. And I was out in the fall and thinking, well, I'm just going to go fill up these two five-gallon buckets. Uh, I was picking hedgehogs and yellow feet, and I thought I'll just go get these, you know, buckets filled up, and I'll come back to the truck and have lunch. And and uh, I got in there, and I was when I'm hunting, I kind of, am pretty good at like noticing like this drainage and that, you know, waypoints and whatnot. But when I'm searching the ground and, and I didn't think to bring a bag or a lighter or anything. And I really got into the mushrooms and got to picking them. And, and then I got turned around and, uh, I thought I could see the skyline, which I thought was a clear cut that I knew that the area I was in, but I was so turned around that when I got there, I was looking down on some cliffs and a river below me. And fortunately, I knew the area and I thought I was going west, but I went east. And it was now dark and a giant storm had come in. And 
I was lucky enough to know my area and how to get out of there. And I didn't get out for another four hours. I had a, a lot of work to do, but I didn't have a lighter. I didn't have a flashlight. And I ended up leaving $300, $400 worth of the mushrooms behind just to just to get out of the woods. But yeah, you really, for now on, when I pick mushrooms, I, I put a fanny pack on with just the basics, you know, so I can start a fire yeah. and that plastic bag and I can have a shelter and, and then I'll have a comfortable night in the woods. And then in the morning I will have a nice walk out. And so I, I really urge people to, uh, to, to do their deal diligence and, and, you know, protect themselves when they go deep into the wilderness. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, the difference between these close calls that so many of us have had in, 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 a, in a survival situation that's in the headlines of the news is, is one bad decision. Yes. And, and, and so everybody, all hunters have, for the most part, experienced and have those close calls where you're one bad decision away from potentially and, a life-threatening situation. And don't rely on your buddy. Don't think, well, I'm going in with a, with a buddy and he and hope he's got that stuff in his bag or hope that you're going to stay with him because you you could get separated from him. And I've heard that story once or twice before where where the one guy thought, well, the other guy had him covered and, and now he's now he's alone. So, you know, take, take a responsibility yeah. for yourself in these. Um, is there anything that we're leaving out because uh, I'd like to uh, to dip into some uh, traditional bow hunting, of course. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I think we could probably talk about survival for, you know, we could probably talk about it forever. Um, but shelter and water and fire are, are really the most important things that we've covered. And, and um, yeah, there, there's nothing that stands out in my mind as, that we're really leaving out some, some things I would add other than telling somebody where you're going and when you're going to be back and not assuming that someone else is going to be looking for you is, um, you know, some basic first aid experience is really valuable. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the stories that I hear of hunters, you know, ended up needing to be medevac and stuff. A, a lot of that is, uh, traumatic injuries or accidental discharges and, and just scary stories. And so some basic first aid experience, take a wilderness first aid class, you know, it's two days long. You could take your wilderness first responder, which is a week long, and you'll be ready to deal with a wide variety of different medical emergencies. You know, our, our bodies are our vehicles that we use to travel through these places and get out and get home safely. And, you know, if you're going to use your vehicle to go on some rugged landscape, you better have a spare tire and know how to throw it on there. And it's the same thing with, with uh, first aid knowledge. You got to know how to, to take care of your of some basic or more complicated injuries and assess, you know, when it is time to hit that button. Um, I think a lot of us think with those emergency beacons that we can just hit that button and a helicopter is going to be in there. But the fact of the matter is, is, is sometimes weather, um, is going to prevent that helicopter from getting yeah. into the air. Sometimes the pilot isn't comfortable flying. Like it, you can't just get pulled out of places right away all the time. Yes. Um, I think so uh, when you go out there, it's on you. That story I shared with Sean uh, Higgins, um, that weather came in Jack and it didn't let up for two, yeah. for two or three months. It, it came in, it was a wet winter. It was raining multiple inches a day for weeks and weeks and weeks. There was a break in the weather for a few days and then went into snow. And 
it, it just never let up. The rivers got humongous. I really believe he he washed out to sea. Uh, um, yeah, because how he you know where he because he never they were never really able to turn him up. Um, but yeah, yeah it's it, it's serious, and we do this for fun and. And you want to, you know, you're going to have a lot more fun on these adventures, uh, on your hunts. If you spend time, like you said, don't just practice with your bow, uh, but know how to use your GPS unit. Know how to uh, use a compass. Know how to uh, build a fire. I mean, some guys think, yeah, you light a lighter onto some sticks and you're going to have a fire. It's in real life conditions. It, it's not that uh, it's not like making a fire in your wood stove or or at camp. It's it, it can be very uh, different. So you guys should be practicing. Yeah, this stuff. if you put one sixteenth the amount of energy into practicing survival that you put into shooting your bow, I think most people, you know, maybe maybe a little more than one sixteenth. But you know that that amount of practice is is like oh is not necessarily sufficient, but it's a lot more than people do already. And we put a lot of energy into shooting our bows and refining our equipment. Just put a little bit of that energy into, into keeping yourself safe and practicing building a fire instead of the lighter fluid. When you're lighting up the barbecue or the fire to hang out with your friends, you know, like get out your, you know, emergency kit, use a little accelerant or maybe, you know, try and do it without the lighter fluid. Um, try and challenge yourself a little bit. Maybe it's really wet out, you know, grab your stuff and see if you can get a fire going, you know, as long as you're not in a drought and wildfire conditions like we are now. Right. But yeah. try and get a fire going when it's wet out in the wintertime or blindfolded or yeah. whatever it is. Like it, these little exercises are so valuable, just like we do when we're shooting. You I, know? See, like I see from your knees or shooting when it's wet out. hundred percent. And I see like a lot of guys that are, you know, planning these hunts for, you know, a year, even two, three years out, maybe it's a backpack hunt in another state and they're getting, you know, this, the lightest tent or, you know, the shelter or, or whatever. And they've, you, you come to find out that they didn't seem seal it. Heck, they never even put it together until they got eight miles from their rig. Um, put these things yeah. together in your yeah. backyard and don't just put them together sleep in them for a night. Like you don't have to sleep in your bed that night. If you're planning on spending a week in the backcountry, spend a day in your backyard, a night in your backyard, uh, yeah. in the shelter and, and get, get familiar with it and the ins and outs of it. And, uh, it's, it's really, uh, easy to not do that, but I, I really highly recommend it. You know, you get a Steri pen with, for your Nalgene bottle set up. Um, Go out and use it and try it out before you put yourself in a situation where you have to rely on it. Big time. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, you know, you only live once. And I think that just going and doing these things like sleep in a pile of leaves or whatever it is, those experiences are invaluable. Dude, everything that we're talking about you can only really learn this stuff by doing it. Like yes. talking about it is great. And, and the, the intention here is to inspire people to do it, but it's just like bow hunting with traditional equipment. Like no matter how much you listen to podcasts at the end of the day, you're going to have to hop in your vehicle, go out to the, the land you're going to hunt. And you're just going to have to get to know that place. There's no secret trick when you have to, when you're hunting with traditional equipment, the secret, the, the, the closest thing to a secret trick is learning the landscape and becoming a part of it. And it's the same with survival. Um, and, and the last thing I want to mention before I forget 
is, you know, I do a lot of primitive skills as well, right? Like flint napping and bow building and, and making cordage and weaving baskets and primitive pottery and all of these, all of these, you know, sort of what I would call ancestral skills or primitive skills. And, and I don't want people to get confused uh, and, and think of those as survival skills. They can be used as survival skills, but, but I think that ultimately like your ability to rub sticks together to make fire is, is excellent. And it's going to benefit your, you know, deep, it's going to deepen your knowledge of creating fire and it's going to make you better at lighting a fire. But, but that is an excuse not to carry a lighter. Um, it's, it, it's not an excuse not to carry modern equipment with you. Absolutely. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a practical application for all different skills, but necessity is the only thing that's going to create an environment where you're going to actually like reach that level of, um, of, uh, what, what am I trying to think? You're going to reach that, that skill level. That's that, that high skill level is only going to come through necessity. Yeah. And so you can only reach a certain skill level through like a calm, chill situation at your house, which is why I'm saying like a fire, maybe blindfold yourself or go out in the rain. Um, it's stuff I tell my students to do all the time. And the ones that have done it uh, have, you know, sometimes exceeded my ability at bow drill for a temporary period of time because they're doing it all the time. And uh, they're actually doing what I'm telling them to do. Well, um, I, I'm going to, so, anyways, I'm going to practice what we're preaching here and, and, uh, you know, get my girls out into the woods and, and build one of these, uh, debris shelters and, and, and climb into these leaves. Cause I've never done that before. And, um, you know, instead of just talking about it, I'm going to go out and, uh, experiment with that and, and try that. And, um, you know, and I'm going to put a little more effort towards uh, making a fire in wet conditions. I mean, you know, these are, these are skill set that, you know, it's like, sure, I've done a little bit of this, but, um, you know, I've spent some night, uh, outside now that I think about it with a little space blanket and a plastic bag that could have been actually comfortable if I would have, uh, you know, gathered up a bunch of, uh, insulation. So, um, and you know, oh, and, and if you pop your sleeping pad, you just make a bed of leaves, you got some pine needles around your sleeping pad gets popped on your, on your elk hunt. All you got to do is throw a little pile beneath your shelter, and now now you're sleeping yeah. comfortable. Again. Yeah, you could fill that so, trash bag yeah. full of debris and and uh, have them make yourself a mattress. I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, and and I didn't realize, but we have gone uh, quite along here, and I think that there's a, a, I think this right here made a great podcast. I think we we left a. Uh, a lot on the table to discuss. I think that we should just go ahead and call this uh, survival school with Jack Harrison. And we should record another one, um, you know, getting in more into the tracking and woodsmanship skills and bow hunting California. Um, and so, you know, if you guys, yeah. uh, I think, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, I really did. I learned a lot from it. And we'll go ahead and bring Jack on here real quick, like bring him right back on and uh, we'll get into uh, the woodsmanship skills and his primitive skills of making bows and flint napped heads and uh, hunting California. And people will be surprised to find out that Jack actually hunts with laminated bows and carbon arrows and <laughs> manufactured you know, broadheads and whatnot as well. So um, yeah, let's, uh, why don't we just go ahead and, and plan to uh, record a second podcast 
where we get more into the traditional bow hunting side of things. Sounds good. And, uh, and, and so for those of you guys that listen to this, you know, if, if you're having a hard time imagining, you know, what a debris hut actually is, or, um, I do have a YouTube video. I, I, I have a channel. I don't really update it. There's a bunch of random stuff on there, but there is a, a, a debris hut video that I made, um, that I think is a great resource. And that YouTube channel is just Jack Harrison survival. That's H A R R I S O N. Just type in Jack Harrison survival debris hut. Um, it's a great little video and I, I talk a lot. It's, I don't know, it's maybe like 20 minutes long. It'll give you a bunch of information and you'll at least get to see the process, uh, of building either a Sasquatch sleeping bag or a debris hut itself, which is slightly different. Okay. So, is there any other videos? Yeah, no problem. It was the pleasure was all mine. Was there any other videos that uh, can be found on that YouTube channel or any other places, uh, folks can reach out to you? Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff on that YouTube channel. Uh, a lot of flint mapping, some some uh, fire, some bow drill, some primitive skill stuff. Um, and and there there's going to be more on there. I, I've been filming some hunting here and and uh, got some good stuff coming. And um, I am on social media. My my Instagram account is Jack Harrison Survival. Um, so you can you can add me there um, if you're interested. And uh, otherwise, guys, just uh, stay safe this season and. And put a little bit of time into, you know, learning the environment you're going into, learn your hazards, learn what to look out for, um, and, and carry the gear that, that you need to survive. Bring extra headlamp batteries, you know, make sure all your stuff's working, make sure your lighter has fuel. Uh, just, just be ready in case an emergency does happen because, like we said, you know, those close calls are, are only one decision away from being a full-on survival situation that we're hearing about on the news. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, what, if, what if someone was wanting to take it a step further and take a class? Is there somewhere you could, uh, direct them t- towards where they could take a class with you and how they would go about doing that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, if, if you live here in California and you want to come take one of these one day survival classes, um, you could go to my website, jackharrisonsurvival.com. If you want to book privately, you can go through there or reach out on social media. If you'd like to just sign up for one of these classes, um, you can go to uh, Adventure Out. It's www.adventureout.com. And uh, you'll see there, click on the Wilderness Skills or Wilderness Survival button, and it's just a one-day survival class. Um, We run it here uh, in Boulder Creek, which is in Santa Cruz, California. And then we also have a second location up uh, just north of San Francisco here in Fairfax. And so um, we run classes all over. If you have a big enough group, um, I do fly all over the place to, to do classes and specific trainings. And so uh, if that's something you're interested in, just contact me directly and we can work that out there. Um, I love teaching. Um, you know, my intention is to share this stuff with as many people as possible. So if you have questions, please reach out. Um, I'm more than happy to share as much as I can with you. Awesome, Jack. Well, we re- really appreciate your time today, and I'm excited to get you back on because uh, you've got some great hunting stories and adventures to share with us uh, about hunting California and those big, nasty, wild boars and the black-tailed deer. And um, yeah, so we will go ahead and make that happen. Um, I'd also like to remind our listeners to tell your friends about the podcast. Check us out at TradQuest podcast on instagram um you can send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com 
Uh, don't forget to support our friends over at Addictive Archery. Andy Ponce is a full-service archery shop and a wood arrow master. He also makes carbon arrows for the folks that are into that. Um, and he's got all your arrow supplies there. And if you're into wood arrows, our buddy Carson Brown at Sherwood Shafts, he's got you covered. And don't forget to support your local bow hunting organizations as well as Compton Traditional and PBS. And always keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight.